France appears to have taken the numerous and heavy hints dropped by the military junta which seized power in Niger in July. This week, France abandoned its insistence that it would maintain a relationship with Niger, whether Niger wanted it or not. France withdrew its ambassador to Niger and conceded that the 1,500 French soldiers stationed in Niger would follow him home as soon as their tents can be folded, probably by the end of this year. Niger is one of several countries in Francophone West Africa in which, in recent years, elected governments have been removed by surly gentlemen dressed in khaki who have gone heavy on the anti-French rhetoric when justifying themselves. It is probably not entirely fair to see this as a reflection on France, vastly preferable to pitch yourself as an anti-imperialist liberator than an opportunist despot. But it is not like France, historically at least, has not furnished Africa's France bashers with the material to work with. And it does raise questions about the foreign policy of France's current president, Emmanuel Macron, who made a point of seeking a more collegiate, less paternalistic relationship with France's former African colonies. Is Macron the reason for France's diplomatic and strategic reverses in Africa, or the scapegoat? How has he fared as a foreign policy president more generally? And what can he do on the world stage with the remainder of his term? This is The Foreign Desk. President Macron is essentially suffering for decades of French involvement in the region. But then the problem is many people in these countries, especially in Mali and Burkina Faso, point to what they think is French hypocrisy in terms of France continue to work with the leaders in Chad, for example, who also came in via a coup. The question they ask is, why does Mr. Macron find that coup acceptable but not ours? Macron thinks France has a particular calling in the world, a particular role to play. He calls it a puissance d'équilibre, which means sort of a balancing power. And I think he wants at the same time to do two things that have an inherent contradiction. That is to say, to speak on behalf of Europe, but also to project France's voice in the world and to say, come and talk to France. France is different. We're not America. But, you know, clearly we're not China either. We're not the global south, but we can talk to everybody. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller, and we will start with the latest on developments in Niger. Anu Adeoya is the West Africa correspondent for the Financial Times. He joins me now. Anu, let's start with this French decision to withdraw its ambassador and its troops from Niger. Is this a recognition that the coup has stuck and that the soldiers are going to be the government of Niger for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think it's important to look at what's been happening in Niger since the coup. The coup happened on July 26. It's been more than two months now. The threat of ECOWAS intervention that was dangled for a few weeks looks very unlikely to happen. So I think President Macron has agreed pretty much like everyone else in the region and the rest of the world that this coup has come to stay and these are the people who will be in charge Uh, for the foreseeable future. As you correctly point out, in the days and weeks after the coup in July, there was a lot of talk largely steered by Nigeria about saddling up some sort of intervention force to steam into Niger and restore Nigerian democracy at gunpoint if necessary. What happened to that? Did Nigeria just sort of set off and discover that nobody was behind them? Did it become clear how impractical an idea it was? I think 
That's one of the reasons. The Nigerian president, who has only been in office since May, President Tinubu, came in all guns blazing to say, you know, we're not going to allow coups anymore in the region. But there was some type of division in ECOWAS, beginning with the coup countries themselves. We have Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso. That's already one-fifth of ECOWAS countries ruled by military regimes living only 12 countries you know nigeria is by far the strongest military power in the region there were very few takers uh who were willing to go alongside nigeria there's also the fact that ECOWAS doesn't have a standing military of its own you have to corral countries to you know supply troops for this operation and i think very importantly there was immense domestic opposition in nigeria people from senators in the president's own party to northern elites who, you know, Nigeria shares a very long border with Niger Republic. And so there were people, elites from many communities who were against this. And there was also, you know, broad civil society and media opposition to any form of Nigeria-led intervention. And if Nigeria can't lead any intervention, there's no way an ECOWAS intervention can stand. So, you know, those are the reasons why it looked like the intervention would not happen. And in the two months since the coup has happened, the intervention looks extremely unlikely to take place anytime soon. There have been some statements and gestures of mutual solidarity and support made among those countries which have recently seen power seized by the military. Do you get the sense that there is some kind of meaningful alliance growing between them? Are they ideologically in step? I mean, the question first is would have to ask these guys, what is their ideology? They have not espoused any ideology beyond seizing power from democratic governments. And in Burkina Faso's case, seizing power from a previous military coup. And, you know, it's the same thing that happened in Mali. They have formed this alliance on paper that says we're going to come to one another's defense if there's external aggression or if there's a rebellion. But, you know, no one actually knows what that means in practice, are you going to supply troops if there were an attempted coup in another country? And I say this because this week, Burkina Faso has experienced what the government called an attempted coup. You know, a government that came to power via a coup has now found that coups are unacceptable. You know, so they have this alliance on paper that says they will defend one another. But in practice, we don't know what it means. And all of these countries are facing serious security challenges. And, you know, there's disgruntlement within, particularly in the Burkina Bay Army, about forming some type of alliance when they have considerable problems at home to deal with. One of the things that they do have in common, and I don't know whether you could necessarily count this as an actual ideology or not, is a proclivity for France bashing at any available opportunity. Do any of them have much of an actual case for grievance, or is this just something that they know is going to play very well with their publics? You know, that's a very interesting question that has two has a two-part answer. There's a young generation in most of these countries that are just learning about the histories of French colonialism, of French exerting influence after independence through Franco-Afrique, which was this, you know, system of working with elites in many parts of Francophone Africa who were, you know, often capricious and corrupt. France was very happy to work with them as long as they stood for French 
commercial interest. There's a lot of young people coming of age now and are learning about these things and, you know, have concerns about legitimate grievances, about how extensive French influence is. And the elites that have seized power now are banking on that. So it's kind of very convenient for soldiers who have seized power to retrofit and find an excuse and say, you know, we're fighting against French imperialism. So it's a case of taking people's legitimate grievances and turning around to use it for their own benefits, because it is a French bashing works really well in these countries for a variety of often legitimate reasons. You mentioned earlier the security issues that these countries all have, this being largely concerned with jihadist factions which are at large across West Africa and the Sahel, none of which have gone away. Are these countries, with or without their new friends in in Wagner Group, actually equipped to deal with serious insurgencies without French military assistance? Uh, I think, unfortunately, the answer is no. It's complicated. When France was there, they didn't make much progress. And that was one of the reasons why people were frustrated with the French approach. The French approach was mostly targeting the leaders of these groups while, you know, there was still a lot of security concerns. The UN was also present. The Malians have kicked out the UN now. And what we've seen in the past, especially in the past month or so, In Mali and in Burkina Faso is an escalation of the security crisis. The northern city of Timbuktu, for example, has been under a blockade since mid-August. Food and medicines can't get in. In Burkina Faso, more than 53 people were killed earlier this month. The security situation is worsening. The Russians seem overwhelmed. You know, it's a ragtag group of mercenaries who are taking on these jihadist groups. So I think there's a lot of security concerns in all of these three countries. And all of these governments, especially in Mali and Burkina Faso, came in with the promise that they were going to improve the situation. That has not been the case. And so, you know, for all the French bashing or telling the UN to leave, there's still serious security issues that they need to solve for their populations. Is there actually anything Macron or indeed any occupant of his position could have done or said which would have made much difference? Is it really fair to characterise President Macron as the man who lost West Africa for France? I mean, ultimately, you know, President Macron is essentially suffering for decades of French involvement in the region. You know, I talked about Francofric when previous French presidents coddled and worked extensively with leaders who were often unpopular at home. Um, To Mr. Macron's credit, he has been the French leader who has tried the most to change the French policy in West Africa. But then the problem is many people in these countries, especially in Mali and Burkina Faso, point to what they think is French hypocrisy in terms of France continue to work with the leaders in Chad, for example, who also came in via a coup. You know, the question they ask is, why does Mr. Macron find that coup acceptable, but not ours? There's also, you know, what people in this country say is French arrogance. Earlier this month in a meeting with French ambassadors in Paris, Mr. Macron said these countries would not exist without France. And he was talking about the assistance that France gave them about a decade ago to tackle the insurgency crisis in 2013. But many people were not happy with the way he framed that. So, you know, there's all these concerns about the way he has like gone about talking about these issues, but also what they see as hypocrisy. But I think ultimately, because of the French history in the region, 
I'm not sure what else you could do to placate people who have these historical grievances against France. Anu, thank you for joining us. That was Anu Adaoya. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, and I'm joined now by Gesine Weber, Research Fellow at the German Marshall Fund, and Sophie Peder, author of Revolution Francaise, Emmanuel Macron and the Quest to Reinvent a Nation. Sophie, let's start with you. Macron has, at various points during his presidency, put quite a lot of effort into West Africa. But was it ever clear that he had a coherent idea of what he wanted France's relationship with its former African colonies to look like? Well, I think that this is the paradox of what's happened in West Africa, really, is, you know, when Macron came to power in 2017, he made a speech in Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso, in which he really tried to launch a reset. It was no longer about paternalism. It was going to be about partnership. He had this line, which was quite striking. He said, I'm of a generation that doesn't come to tell Africans what to do. And I think that this was very welcome. You know, he was given a great welcome when he went to some countries, including ones that aren't even Francophone Africa, like Nigeria. You know, when you look at what he's done since then, he's uh, he went to Rwanda and asked forgiveness for France's role in the genocide there. He's returned artworks for museums in Paris. He's tried to sort of bring about a real change in the way France behaves and acts towards Africa. And yet, you know, France is now seen as the problem in the region. And it's very difficult to set that down as a success. This is what France is dealing with. The weight of history, the inherent suspicion of everything France does in West Africa, and the speed at which people want change when change comes slowly just makes it all extremely difficult, I think, for France to have any good options at the moment. And that is what I think is the real paradox at the heart of this. He wanted a reset, and it's really not been perceived that way at all. We wanted to broaden this conversation out a bit to look at Macron and foreign policy more generally. We've had time now to get used to him as president. And a couple of years ago, we did make an episode of the Foreign Desk called The Macron Doctrine, trying to figure out if there was indeed such a thing. And Sophie, I'll put it to you because I, I think I recall you participating in that program, that the president of France now finds themselves in a remarkable position. France is now the only country after Brexit which is a member of NATO, the EU and the Permanent Five of the UN Security Council. Do you get the sense that Macron has yet figured out what he wants France's role to be given that? I did participate. I do remember that conversation at the time and things have moved on since then, obviously. But I I think, you know, probably what we discussed at the time still holds. That's to say, I see Macron's foreign policy doctrine as being sort of resting on two legs to it. One of them is Europe. I mean, Europe is the answer in his mind, I think, to a lot of the geopolitical challenges of the day, whether it's rising China, whether it's the risk that America pivots away from Europe. And clearly for 2024, that's a big question that Europeans are going to have to face. So what he used to call European sovereignty or strategic autonomy or whatever you want, what name you want to put to it, the war in Ukraine, the COVID pandemic as well, have actually sort of in a way made those ideas a part of the European conversation and in fact part of what Europe is really doing. So I think that is one leg to it. But the other is that Macron thinks France has a particular calling in the world, a particular role to play. He calls it a puissance d'équilibre, which means sort of a balancing power. 
And I think he wants at the same time to do two things that have an inherent contradiction, that is to say, to speak on behalf of Europe, but also to project France's voice in the world and to say, come and talk to France. France is different. We're not America, but you know, clearly we're not China either. We're not the global south, but we can talk to everybody. And that, I think, is a contradiction that still you know, makes it difficult for him to both be you know, a leader that defends France's national interests and a sort of a leader for Europe. Gazina, Sophie there mentions one of his key themes, which is this idea of strategic autonomy. And I think related to that is this thing he has floated, the European political community, distinct from the EU. And I think it's fair to say that Macron has never lacked any sense of the the grandeur of the office he inhabits or indeed of the nation he leads. Are, are all these very thinly disguised ways of saying France should basically be in charge? I wouldn't go so far. I would rather say that um, it is very coherent and consistent, actually, with what Macron has been doing over the last six years since he's in office and that is really coming up with a lot of new initiatives and also coming up with new initiatives when he realizes that some things cannot be achieved within the European Union. Um, I think the European political community is part of this endeavor as well, although it is pretty much different from the European Union as such, of course, because the European Union with all its institutions can really adopt measures. It is an international organization that has a significant degree of integration and also uh, lawmaking competence. And the European political community, on the other hand, remains pretty much a talking shop. Although one has to say it's an incredibly useful and valuable talking shop because it helps to strike, yeah, sometimes bilateral deals, it helps to bring leaders closer together and so on. But of course, the fact that the European political community actually works very well and that leaders in general after these meetings describe them as very productive and very uh, fruitful um, shows, of course, that French leadership and also Macron's aspiration to show that he is able to bring new initiatives to Europe pays off. Sophie, he has, of course, been confronted like every European leader has over the last 18 months with the greatest challenge, I guess, to thinking on European foreign policy in a generation, which is Russia's rampage in Ukraine. Do you get the sense now, looking at how he's responded over 18 months, that he has somewhat fumbled that? He was trying to do that balancing thing you were talking about. He did keep speaking up about security guarantees for Russia and the dangers of humiliating Russia at a time when really there wasn't a big audience for that elsewhere in the continent. I think over the last 18 months, we've seen a, a real evolution in Macron's policy towards Russia, but also towards Ukraine. And I think back to February 2022, I was on that trip with him when he went to see Putin in a sort of last ditch effort to try and talk him out of war. And, you know, I think Macron had this idea that he was going to be able to use rationality and reason to sort of talk to someone who was way beyond that. And that stayed with him during those first few months when I think that the dialogue he thought was actually still going to be useful. Well, you know, Macron now hasn't spoken to Putin since September last year. That's 12 months ago. France has increasingly over time sent military weaponry, most recently cruise missiles, you know, stuff that has been really appreciated by Ukraine. 
And I think that you haven't seen those sort of comments that you mentioned made really for the last over six months now. So I see this as an evolution. I see Macron now emerging quite unexpectedly in some ways as a sort of champion for Ukraine, both in terms of its aspiration to join NATO and to join the European Union. And none of us would have guessed that at the time. So yes, you know, it took him a long time, but it has, and I think he's got there. And I think it's been a real shift in French policy. It might be a bit of a reach, Gazina, but is there a pattern of him being somewhat blindsided by things like the fact that he found himself initially, as Sophie points out, massively out of step on Ukraine before deciding to get out in front of it? But also things like, you know, he clearly took it very personally, the establishment of AUKUS involving Australia's reneging on a deal to buy submarines from France. And I I can understand why you would be annoyed by that if you are the president of France, but he really did take it quite personally and very much allowed the impression to be conveyed that he'd been completely startled by it. Yes, but I think this was also really due to the context. Given the circumstances of AUKUS, I was not very surprised. And this feeling was also shared by his then foreign minister, Le Drian, who had negotiated the contract. However, I think it's very important to see that also from the institutional perspective in French foreign policy, because French foreign policy at the moment, and particularly under Macron or during his entire mandate, has really been uh, centralized in the Elysee Palace, so that what happens in foreign policy and the accents that he chooses and all that is really quite often what he thinks is right. And when then he has prioritized the Indo-Pacific and partnership with Australia and India there over the last years, and then he learns about AUKUS a few hours before it goes public, I was actually not very surprised that he took a person. But just to follow that up, Gazina, it does often seem, looking at it from outside, like there is this kind of impetuousness to his behaviour on the world stage. Thinking back to the Beirut port explosion in 2020, and granted it was good that somebody's political leader turned up and looked like they were taking an interest, because sure as heck none of Lebanon's political leaders did, but that seemed like a really strange thing to do, for him to decide 48 hours after this disaster in another country, admittedly one with which France does have a close relationship, but nonetheless just deciding, I must go. Yeah, admittedly, I think that is also linked to what Sophie mentioned in his idea of a Macron doctrine. Um, It is really that idea of Macron that France has a role to play on the international scene. That is also that he often links that to his presence somewhere, to him commenting on international affairs. He's often among the first people to do that. So um, this is coherent with his um, doctrine, but seeing it from the outside, that looks very, very bluntly speaking, like a president who just has a huge ego and who really also uses that as a tool for foreign policy. Sophie, that does, I guess, prompt the question of the degree to which his personal character influences the conduct of French foreign policy. And as you have already alluded to, you've seen him conducting foreign policy up close. I know you've interviewed him, spoken to him, etc. What's your sense you've been able to get of what the other national leaders he deals with think of him personally? Is he good at forging relationships? Does he have natural allies? Because to a degree which is both heartening and alarming, extraordinary historical things can shift on whether two people happen to get along or not. 
Yes, and you're right, of course it does. I mean, one of the things that strikes everybody about Emmanuel Macron is that when he has a meeting with you or with one of his partners, you know, one-on-one, he has an incredible sort of empathy and people find that they get on really well. You saw that with the King of England's visit to France. It is sort of a talent, but at the same time, he also has a sort of public ability to rub people up the wrong way. He likes to kind of shake things up, to say things he made that comment to us about the brain death of NATO back in 2019. And this is also part of what makes up his personality. And so I think you have that sort of double-edged situation where, you know, people like the fact that he comes into a room, he brings energy, he's very tactile, he does form these good relationships individually one-on-one with leaders, although they don't always work out. His relationship with Olaf Scholz at the moment is a little bit tricky, but then in public, he wants to stir things up sometimes, and that partners can find difficult. Casina, for all that, as Sophie points out, Macron does now loom as one of Europe's senior leaders. He has been in post a considerable time now, but he does still have nearly four years to go. Do we understand what ambitions he still has for France on the world stage? I think how exactly he can implement his foreign policy does, of course, depend on a lot of external factors as well, also on how uh, Russia's war on Ukraine continues, and also on uh, the increasing tensions between the US and China. But I think it's safe to say that um, defense integration within the EU has always been one of his flagship initiatives and really the things that have been very important for him since his very first mandate. And it was also very visible when he gave his Sorbonne speech in 2017. But I think overall, it's really this idea of call it strategic autonomy, call it European sovereignty. It is the idea of making Europe stronger, of enhancing European industrial policy, technology policy, implementing the Green Deal, making sure that Europeans are able to um, shoulder more of the burden for their own security, particularly in light of the 2024 US elections. So there's a lot, I think, where he will be pushing for and make French uh, diplomats in Brussels work very hard to achieve these goals. And overall, I think it's also really this idea of defining an approach of Europe to the Indo-Pacific. And this idea that France and Europe could offer a third way and a distinctly European way. That was Gesine Weber, Research Fellow at the German Marshall Fund, and Sophie Pedder, author of Revolution Francaise, Emmanuel Macron and the Quest to Reinvent a Nation. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. And for a broader historical look at French foreign policy and where President Macron fits into it, I'm joined now by Michel Duclos, Special Advisor and Resident Senior Fellow in Geopolitics and Diplomacy at the Institute Montaigne. He has previously served as France's Ambassador to Syria and Switzerland and as France's Deputy Ambassador to the United Nations. Well, let's start with the basics. If we think of the eternals of French foreign policy, what are France's permanent interests? I think that in the French mindset, something which is key, of course, is the notion of independence, something that de Gaulle uh, was impressed very forcefully in the French minds. Then the European dimension became key after de Gaulle, and also, especially uh, after Giscard d'Estaing, this idea that uh, France has a vocation to deal with uh, what is called now the global south. 
And so those are the three pillars of the uh, French approach. And the great risk today is a kind of misunderstanding about the legacy of the goal. That is to say, the French political class tend to believe that the goal was uh, motivated by um, test for dialogue with Russia, uh, good understanding with Russia, and uh, bad relations with the US, which may have been true after a certain period, but not certainly at the times of the uh, crisis of Berlin or the crisis of Cuba, where it was totally uh, aligned. And the situation today of confrontation between the East and the West looks uh, like the beginning of the 60s and not the end of the 60s, the time of the détente. And the same vis-à-vis -vis the South, and especially in Africa, there was a tendency over the last years to believe that France should stay, play an important part, and especially, of course, be a military present and do a lot in military terms. And uh, the French system didn't realize that uh, the, the world had changed in Africa too. Other countries are there now, especially China uh, and Russia, including also the United States. And that uh, the more we were military uh, present, the more we became unpopular in the populations. You mentioned Charles de Gaulle, who had this idea, of course, of France as a balancing power. Have his successors as presidents of the Fifth Republic always found that possible? Has there been, I guess, a, a reluctance to pick a side? Yeah, but that's my point. There is a misunderstanding about de Gaulle's legacy. That is to say that the de Gaulle you mentioned in terms of balancing power and things like that was de Gaulle after 1965. That is to say, once détente with the USSR has started. But before that, and I would say after that, there was another de Gaulle. The de Gaulle of the Berlin crisis in 1960 and the de Gaulle of the Cuba crisis in 1962 was not at the goal calling Mr. Kraltchev and saying, Mr. Secretary General, we could maybe find a middle ground with the US. The goal was totally aligned to the Atlantic world. And my point is that in the world of today, we are closer to the situation of East-West confrontation at the beginning of the 60s, then at the time of the détente after 65. Is the role of the presidency itself in France perhaps constraining in a foreign policy context that there is this presumption that the president has to personify policy? There isn't really another role like it in modern Europe, especially not among the republics. I must say that it has been a strength for the French system for a long time, because we were able to be more agile, more flexible to take initiatives. If you compare with the British system, for instance, my uh, British colleagues used to say, you are in a better position than us. 
today it's also different probably things are evolving too and it's becoming a, a weakness because the world is so complex that it's simply not possible to put uh, responsibility uh, on the shoulders of uh, only one man. Is there a concern, do you think, given the way that foreign policy is wrapped up in the presidency, that it could change radically and for the worse should France elect someone like Marine Le Pen in 2027? It's a good point. And there, if you compare with the US, for instance, uh, you can say that in the US, the president is uh, heavily constrained, especially by the Congress. Uh, next, uh, US president could decide to stop support uh, to Ukraine, but he would have to deal with the Congress, who is able to finance uh, weapons uh, transfers, for instance. In France, you are, you are right, it could be different. And the check and balances will not apply or will not apply sufficiently in case of radical presidency. Well, to bring this back to the figure of President Macron, then, if you think of him as a foreign policy president measured against any of his predecessors, does he remind you of anybody? Does there appear to be a model either in recent or more distant French history that he has tried to emulate? Not really, actually. You know, at the beginning of his uh, stay in the Elysee, he referred uh, to what they call Gaulle-Mitterrandism, that is to say uh, a synthesis of De Gaulle and François Mitterrand. But that lasted, in fact, not very long, a few months, maybe uh, one year or two. And then he became himself. And in fact, it should be compared to another president. It could be um, Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, who was, uh, as uh, Macron, a man from the uh, Ministry of Finance, what we call um, Inspecteur de Finance, with a test for uh, global uh, concepts, a tendency uh, to have a good opinion of the Russians, and a serious uh, concern with uh, finding common ground with what at the time of Giscard was the third world and now the global south. And so if there should be some comparison, it could be with President Giscard this time. I say that probably Macron himself would be horrified to hear that, but that's the way I see things. Michel Duclos, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.